0: Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education Research. And finally, our brand new graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. So yes, first and foremost, welcome Luke to our team and our show. So looking forward to your contributions to the Institute's mission. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So today we thought we'd talk about conception of faith by Kierkegaard. And so, of course, this one we have to let Justin lead the way and see what does mean to have faith. Does that mean we just hang our hat on something that we don't have enough evidence to prove? Or what was Kierkegaard thinking, Justin?
1: Okay. So what we'll talk about is Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling which is probably his best known work. And it's an examination of Christian faith, in particular by analyzing the story of Abraham. Okay. So and maybe brief background on Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher. He is one of the two fathers of existentialism. So Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, writing at approximately similar times, are both considered fathers of you know the philosophical... General school of existentialism,
0: and we need a definition there, real quick. Existentialism can't give a definition of existentialism,
1: (laughs) but why don't we just jump into it? Okay, okay. So Kierkegaard is living in Copenhagen in the late 1800s, and and Copenhagen is a Christian society in the sense that everybody in Copenhagen belongs to the church, right? Kierkegaard's father was a, a Lutheran minister, I believe. And Kierkegaard says that his project is to be a kind of Christian Socrates. And so Socrates was you know, the, the father of Greek philosophy. And Socrates, what he did is he went around talking to experts or supposed experts, and he would embarrass them by asking them questions. And it turned out that these people who were supposedly experts on things like virtue or knowledge or the good or justice didn't know what they were talking about. Socrates would always make, you know, talk them into contradictions. And, and of course, you know, what happened to Socrates? Well, the Athenians voted to execute him. (laughs) So Kierkegaard says, I'm going to be the Christian Socrates. And what he means by that is he thinks that the people in his society who are nominally Christian don't take Christianity seriously. They don't live Christianity. They don't really understand the thing which they purport to be. They view Christianity like being a member of AAA, right? Where (laughs) you just pay your fee and then you're covered for the year. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, it's perfect. I think
0: that's still true today, of course.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so (laughs) I actually think, you know, I think Kierkegaard is one of my favorite writers. He's very difficult and dense, but he's very, very deep. So what he does is he says, let's look at the Bible and let's look at the father of faith in the Bible, which is Abraham. He says, let's try to look at Abraham's story with kind of fresh eyes and forget the way you heard about Abraham in Sunday school. Let's try to think our way into what it must have been to be Abraham. So I know I dismissed your definition earlier for existentialism. Yeah, but part of what existentialism Uh, what's really central to existentialism is understanding what it's like to be a subject in the world. That is to understand life from a point of view, not a kind of scientific understanding of the world that is, you know, what objectivity tells us, but what the lived experience of something is like. And so really quickly, when I say Kierkegaard wants us to dismiss the Sunday school version of the Abraham story. This might not be true for you but i know the sunday school version of the abraham story as it was told to me is something like abraham was the father of faith abraham was told to sacrifice his son isaac abraham took isaac up the mountain bound isaac and then when he was about to sacrifice isaac the lord provided a ram or a, you know sometimes in other translations something different but the lord provided something else and so abraham didn't have to sacrifice isaac therefore That's just an example that if you have faith, everything works out, right? Mm -hmm. And Kierkegaard says that is absolutely not the lesson that you should draw from the Abraham story. He says, let's try to think about what it must have been like to be Abraham. First of all, you leave your household. You are told by God that you will be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And you believe it. And you marry Sarah, your wife, has no children. She has no children until she's, what, 90? 90-something. 90 so 90-something years old. And yet you still believe against all the evidence that you have. Aside from God telling you, the only evidence you have is that your wife is old, right? You've never seen <laughs> anyone give birth this old, right? So finally, by some miracle, you get a son. And now finally, God's plan, which God told you, makes sense. It doesn't make sense for you to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel when you have a 97-year-old wife and you don't have any kids, right? So then miraculously, God gives you a son. And you think, okay, things make sense now. And then God tells you, okay, Abraham, I want you to go take your son up to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And now all is lost, right? Right? At this point, God doesn't say to Abraham, hey, I want you to pretend to take Isaac up to the top of the mountain, right? Uh, He doesn't wink at Abraham when he says, take Isaac to the top of the mountain. So Abraham, if we think about what it is to be Abraham, does Abraham now not believe that he is going to sacrifice Isaac? No, he believes he's going to sacrifice Isaac. Does he also believe that He is going to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Kierkegaard says, Yes, he Abraham believes what God tells him. But now it seems like Abraham believes that he's going to sacrifice his son and that he's going to get his son back, which doesn't make any sense. It it looks more and more when we try to think our way into the mind of Abraham that we have what he has to believe is something like a contradiction. And then Kierkegaard goes on this very long discussion about. Whether or not Abraham acted immorally or not, which is kind of not exactly in line with the discussion of what faith is, but his eventual claim is like, look, morality has to be what we can demand of each other. And so Kierkegaard goes through some other situations in mythology where and history where people had to sacrifice their children. So there's King Agamemnon who has to sacrifice his daughter to get. The fleet back home in time to defend the city. And the thing about, and you might say, that's kind of like Abraham, where Abraham's required to sacrifice his son. And Kierkegaard says this is different though, because Agamemnon, if you ask the people in his society, he can say something like, look, don't we agree that we have to sacrifice one to save all of us? It's either we all die or somebody, you know, or one of us has to be sacrificed. It's sad. You know, I really wish it wasn't me, but I think that honor demands that, you know, whoever draws the shortest straw, we as a society can demand of that person that they make that sacrifice. Then he talks about Brutus in Rome, a similar thing. Uh, Brutus has to execute the leaders of a attempted coup d'etat. The people who attempted the coup d'etat, Brutus's sons. Now Brutus, you know, he is sacrificing his sons, but what can he say to people who say, why are you doing that? He can say, look, the law demands it. The law is what we all agree to. It's what we all require of each other. Now, that's different than Abraham's case, right? Because Abraham, I mean, even if Sarah asks Abraham what he's doing, what can he say?
2: Yeah, it's coming
1: from the big guy upstairs type of thing, right? God told me to do it, but... And then Sarah can say, but didn't God tell you that you're supposed to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel? And he can say, well, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice him, but I get him back. Like <laughs> You can't, when you are in Abraham's position, you are alone, right? Abraham was facing God on his own, right? And he had to act in a way that doesn't make sense to anybody. He can't even explain himself. He can't explain himself to Sarah. He can't explain himself to Isaac, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Trick him a little bit to
0: uh, just trust me, we're going up on the mountain.
1: The Lord will provide you, that, that right? That's America. what he says. And so Kierkegaard's point is if we take the story of Abraham seriously, faith isn't what some people say is like, well, faith is just believing something that you don't have enough evidence for, right? And look, if that's actually the case, and you see people say this sometimes, they go, well, religious faith, you know, if faith is just believing something that we don't have evidence for, then everyone has faith, even non-religious people, because you can't have evidence for, you know, all your beliefs, right? And so we do believe a lot of things that we don't have evidence for. But Kierkegaard has a line that, you know, if you try to make that move, not being content with turning water into wine, you turn wine back into water. That is. You take something that's really, really precious and you turn it into something commonplace. So Kierkegaard says, if we are serious that Abraham is the father of faith, then we need to look at what Abraham did. What Abraham did is incredible, literally in the sense of like being hard to believe. And Kierkegaard says, that's why faith is something you aspire to. It takes a lifetime to get to that. It's not something that you just pay your dues and, you know, you automatically have it. It is what he called a one-to-one relationship with the absolute. And he is going to say what it means to be a faithful person is, you know, you are not going to be able to explain it to somebody else objectively. You can live it, but the most you can try to do is to try to think your way into these example like biblical examples that we have. He talks about Mary a little bit too, because you can tell a similar story about what Mary had to undergo, right? So it's fun to think about the title of Fear and Trembling, because on the book's cover, you see, you know, this great painting of Abraham laying the blade on Isaac's throat, and Isaac is looking up at his father, you know, obviously terrified. And so you might think, well, what does Fear and Trembling refer to? Does it refer to Isaac's fear and trembling looking at his father? And I don't think, I mean, You could take that reading, or you could say it's Abraham's fear and trembling in the face of God's commandments, right? But I actually think, and I think this is what Kierkegaard says, the title refers to Kierkegaard's fear and trembling when he's trying to think his way into Abraham.
0: All right. Well, I think this is a good cliffhanger for us to come up with some questions. One on my mind is faith and morality. So can we be immoral and still faithful or faithful and moral? I'm struggling a little bit with how that that went. So I, I think we'll come up with some other things and pick up from there after the break. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and in economics in action. We have a great uh, dual credit microeconomics course for high school students that are looking to achieve some high school credit, and they can check with their institutions to see if it can count towards high school credit and college credit. We'd love you to come to Ottawa University and check out what we have to offer, uh, but these credits will be transferable to other places too. If you were someone, you know, is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today.
1: Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay,
0: so my morality question, Justin, I think might be short. That's usually not the way it ends up going. We get into some long, deep things, especially at Kierkegaard, but... Did I hear you right that we could be like immoral in the eyes of humans? So I'm thinking kind of if I'm going back to dual kingdom theory here, the two kingdom theory of Luther, which Kierkegaard was closely there after the original Luther time frame. You've got the left-hand kingdom where humans are dealing with humans and how you maybe experience your faith and explore your faith with humans. And then the right-hand kingdom was more of the one-on-one, mano a mano, you and God, Your relationship with God, your true faith, so to speak. And so is that what you're getting at, that we can be viewed as immoral by other humans, like in Abraham's case, but Abraham claimed, no, I'm being moral because I'm faithful to God. That's the part I'm
1: just struggling with a little bit. So there's a a whole section of Fear and Trampling called Is There a Teleological Suspension of the Ethical? <laughs> and that's the question he addresses in this in this part. Okay. So, he says, by the ethical, I mean the universal, and by the universal, I mean the moral, and it, he likes word games, so the sentences are impossibly constructed. But, what he ends up articulating is by moral, or ethical, he means something like Kant's System of Ethics, where to act morally is to act in a way such that your will is universalizable, which <laughs> means that anybody that you are doing a thing for a reason that you could demand that everybody else also mm, do too. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially, and it's more complicated than that, but it's essentially not making an exception of yourself. Yeah. Which sounds impossible, basically, in today's world anyway, for sure. But well, it's such that the goal of your action is attainable in a world where everyone acts in the manner you do. So yeah. theft, for instance, you know, oh, like oh I when you steal something, what you are saying, like, I want this uh, this other person's private property to be my private property. But Kant says if everybody acted like that all the time, you wouldn't actually be able to steal the thing. Right. Because there would be no conception of private property, or mm-hmm. lying is an example too. Mm-hmm. If everybody broke, the, or like not a better example is probably not paying not paying back a debt. Mm-hmm. If I say I'll give you twenty dollars, and then um, you know on Monday where's that twenty dollars you know that I lent you, and I say ah, well it's in my best interest now not to pay you back. Right now, if everybody always did that, I wouldn't be able to get the loan in the first place. Right, so that's Kant's conception of what makes things ethical, and the important part about that is that it's what we can demand of everybody. So that's a very specific meaning for what morality is. So then his question is, what did Abraham do? And I mean, his answer is, if we just look at it objectively, like not from Abraham's perspective, he tried to kill his son, right? And if anything is immoral, trying to kill your son is immoral. And so he says, so do we have to say that Abraham acted immorally? And Kierkegaard doesn't want to say that, right? So mm-hmm. his answer is, that, is a yes to the question of the title, right? Which is, is there a teleological suspension of the ethical? Mm-hmm. So he's going to say, because Abraham is in this one-to-one relationship with the absolute, the ethical is suspended for Abraham. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's neither immoral nor moral. Because remember, the source of morality and what we mean by morality is this very technical and specific claim. And
0: a lot of shysters have used that same logic over time. It's my actions are okay because I've got a one-on-one with God that said it was okay. Sure. Charlatans and people, you know, over time that either prosperity gospel or otherwise doing things in the name of God. Claiming that same relationship is my point. That's right. what you said. That I mean, get, get that suspend. pedestrian with
2: your car. When they're driving the other way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Peter, what do you got here to spar? So the answer to this might just be no, in which case I'm going to put a lot more work and make you give me your thoughts. <laughs> but I think the proper reading of Genesis 22 is that it's the first half of a story. And actually the second half of the story comes along a lot later. And what I mean by that is, Genesis 22 has, and this is not like original to me, this is noticed by a lot of biblical scholars over time, has a lot of very clear parallels between Isaac and Christ. I mean, there's the obvious one that the son is being sacrificed by the father. But the, you know, even like very specific details, like first off, it's the same mountain. And so Mount Calvary and the mountain that Isaac's being sacrificed on, same mountain, same place, maybe not the exact same part of the mountain, but it's the same mountain. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain. This is, you know, Jesus carries his own cross up the Mount Calvary on his way to being sacrificed. And so there, there's a lot of these parallels that run. And so basically what I'm asking or what I'm wondering is, does Kierkegaard make any comments about this relationship between Isaac and, and later Jesus in the Bible and what, you know, sort of uh, relationship there, there is there for, for Abraham's faith or the fulfillment of his faith? Does he talk about that at all? and if not what do you think about that
1: off the top of my head i want to say I mean he talks about jesus all throughout this thing mm-hmm. so it's i would be it. shocked if he didn't but i can't quote chapter verse of where he does sure. off the top of my head okay yeah i 100% agree with you that there are all of these parallels there i think that when you draw these parallels then the project becomes Interesting too, because if Abraham is the example of faith by sacrificing Isaac and we're trying to think our way into the head of Abraham, and it's very hard to do that, right? That's the moral of the story, or it's the moral of Kierkegaard's reading of the story. Does that tell us something about trying to think our way into the mind of God mm-hmm. in the Jesus story, right? right? And so, one of the things that you often find in arguments against the existence of God are things like, you know, the problem of evil or whatever. How could a good God involve, like allow all of this evil in the world or whatever? And I've always thought that one of the best answers to that is like, who are you to try to think your way into it? Why would you think you could even think your way into the mind of God or that you would be able to make sense of that? So that would be my take on maybe something that this parallelism could elucidate but if you wanted to push it in a different direction I'd...
2: no I think th- I really was having kind of like an open thought about this question and I I was kind of in the, in the same thinking trying to understand well like what does that mean and the of course the the big difference is whereas God had Abraham spare his own son God does not spare his own son and so what is the significance of that difference and what is that I, I think It might not be able to get us into the mind of God, because I agree with you. And actually, that's one of my favorite responses to that, that question, too. But it does, I think, tell us something about the character of God that God has Abraham spare his own son within, you know, this is another parallel that's been drawn, but it's a ram that's caught in the thorns. And Jesus, of course, is known for having the crown of thorns. This is another thing that we read in scripture, but he doesn't spare his own son. And so, what does that tell us about God? Well, also remember, you
1: know, and Kierkegaard makes the whole point of this that Abraham believes that he's going to sacrifice his son and get him back, right? God does sacrifice his son and does get him back. Yeah. And if you believe the gospel, we all get him back.
2: Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, I thought that it seemed all but he was all but dead, right? So they bring the Bible brings you right to the edge of where Isaac's gone, and then he's brought back to life in a sense. Because we're, we're right at that point where we all believe Abraham's really going to carry through with it. And then he's spared. So you can almost think of it as a death and rebirth in that story, even though he, you know, technically doesn't yeah, die the way we the,
2: an- see it. the angel stops him as the knife's go yeah, down, right? True. Or as the knife's about to go down. I yeah. can't remember which. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, what I really like about the story is that it, or what I like about Kierkegaard's reading is that it makes you confront something that I think most people just internalize if they're brought up in the church from a young age with a kind of fresh set of eyes. And I think it can help inspire more of a kind of, a, a kind of wonder at the story rather than a kind of blase, you know, just so, you know, if you do this and this will happen. blah I'll blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, carry it through. Yeah.
0: Luke, were you had something you wanted to throw about reason or something?
2: Yeah, I was thinking like about since you're saying act, Abraham's actions, they don't make any sense. So
1: where does reason fit into faith? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no action that makes sense in that at all. So what was his? What, what where's it gonna make sense to? Fit was reason it? suspended also? Or? yeah, like there's <laughs> nothing. Yeah, I think one of the morals you can draw from this is that if Kierkegaard is right, then faith isn't reasonable. It's just a mistake to think that faith and reason are the same thing. Faith is more like a passion than a uh, something you can deduce.
2: I'm actually really glad you brought up that question and that answer, because this almost in like a very weird way, I think settles Kierkegaard. And like, I, I don't mean to try to pigeonhole because I'm sure there's aspects where that's not true, but in a sense settles him a lot into like an evangelical camp because what one thing that I, I am an evangelical. One thing that I dislike though, whether it's from evangelicals, Catholics, any tradition is when people say things like, well, I believe faith and science can work together. And you know, Mm -hmm. I don't dislike the spirit behind that, but what I dislike is like, but you recognize that part of the Bible says that someone miraculously rose from the dead or that like the sea parted, right? These are things that don't have scientific explanations. And if they did, it seems like they would have less of value. And so evangelicals tend to embrace this side of things, uh, maybe even, you know, further than I would in, in certain aspects and say, you know, if science tells me something that contradicts the Bible, then I'm going with the Bible. Evangelicals are very clear about this and I'm not going to try to re-understand the Bible in light of something new that we learned. So th- do you think Kierkegaard, in a sense, this denial of like faith is, is reasonable? Do you think that is kind of a, a similar sort of approach?
1: Yeah. He's, I mean, he would say that what you were saying you don't like is exactly the kind of turning a uh, line back into water. Yeah. Um, okay. So as you were talking about reason and
0: faith, I started to think of reason being more of a, a process to challenge faith. So I kind of think of my stock and flow variables in economics class, when we you know, have a process of we're, we're building up wealth. And so we, We have a paycheck and an income comes in in a month, and then our wealth goes up or possibly something happens and our wealth goes down. And so the the wealth is the stock of something. And I, I think our faith is kind of that way in a sense. People doubt their faith. Some people have faith in different things than what we conceive as the Christian God. And so I think reason is there to challenge your faith in whatever you apparently have faith in and it can refine and make it better. And so as a Christian comes to faith, let's say, and they're all filled with good feelings and life is good, and then two years later, they start to question that faith because they lost that feeling of God. They might be able to use their reason to justify their faith again in the sense of investigating was Jesus a real human being? What kind of evidence do we have? And so it turns out the biblical evidence is pretty good compared to like Muhammad, who had 600 years of nothing in writing, and it was all verbal. So the historical evidence and arguments for Jesus are actually pretty strong. And so I think reason can guide us back to
1: our faith or challenge it as we go through life. You Kierkegaard's answer, which is that uh, Kierkegaard was the person who popularized the term "leap of faith." Is that right? Yeah, and that's you know it's all throughout Fear and Trembling, and his point is that there are these decisions that you are going to have to make where you won't have enough evidence either way, mm-hmm. and you must leap. The question is whether or not you know where you're going to leap to, and so his claim is that faith is always this kind of leap. You'll never have a certain evidence that for a kind of religious belief, it always requires a leap. And if it didn't require a leap, it wouldn't be faith.
2: So I have another question for you, Justin, and this can be to Justin or to what you would think your would say. One thing that's often emphasized, you know, for different reasons amongst different Christians is the difference between belief and faith. Can you talk to that a little bit if you have any thoughts on that, on anything like that? So one of the things we get from Kierkegaard
1: is a very specific conception of faith in the same way that I was saying he was dealing with a very specific conception of morality, right? A lot of people use the word morality to just mean what you should do. But if we're using the word morality in Kierkegaard's terms, that's not what it means. It means what other people can rationally demand of you, like right? And Kierkegaard thinks that Abraham did the right thing, right? But he doesn't think he did the moral thing that make sense okay that's kind of circling back to what I was struggling with earlier no
2: that doesn't make sense I'll, I'll just be honest
1: so remember Kierkegaard thinks that morality is suspended for Abraham I don't understand why he thinks that because he doesn't want to say Abraham acted immorally but given what he says morality is he would
2: have to say that why wouldn't he suspend his believe, he is, uh, why wouldn't he say my definition of morality must be incorrect Why wouldn't he make that move instead? Because it seems like the two options are, I have to be able to make an exception when you're dealing with the absolute or my conception of morality is incorrect. Because my conception of morality is like in relationship to the absolute. If the absolute says something, then it is moral. If the absolute says don't do something, it's not moral. That's how I conceive of morality. And so why wouldn't Kierkegaard just say, instead of, well, there's an exception when dealing with the absolute, that the absolute is the, the definer of reality. I can give
1: mm-hmm. one reason which I think Kierkegaard might say, which is, look, I'm not going to try to reinvent what people, what in philosophy, the term means right now. Okay. Right? Which mm-hmm. is, I mean, Kantian conception of morality was yep. just that. Right? Okay. That makes sense. Um, right. The second thing he might say is I want to make room for faith and I want to talk about faith. You can t- say whatever you want about morality. I want to make sure that you know, we don't settle on what we mean by morality first, and then have it, you know, and then all agree to you know be moral, and then it turns out that we have to say things that what we, well, you know, we don't want to do. If I is saying, you know, morality is suspended. This is the thing that's important. I see. Yeah, this that makes space.
2: sense. That um, makes sense.
0: All right. Well, any last words there? So it's fair to say that morality is defined as external demands by
1: humans. What we can rationally demand of each other. Yeah. So there are all kinds of external demands by humans that aren't okay. things that we could rationally demand of each other, Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Um, okay. But it's using reason actually to figure out that definition of morality. Yeah, exactly. So Kierkegaard thinks morality is reasonable. Yeah, um, right, right. In just the way that faith isn't. Yeah, yeah. It
0: kind of builds a, really the social structure and fabric of what Luther would have called the left-hand kingdom too. That That's just part of it. But then I think your point is good that that was by God's design. So it's really all put, it's not really yeah, suspended. I, it was, uh, I, I think it created in the image of God and God created us. And, yeah, I, and I, so I, it ultimately goes back to the absolute,
2: I think at the bottom of the barrel pursuing that line that I was trying to with Justin would come to like semantic disagreements that like, we're just calling different things, the same thing and calling the same things, different things. I think basically like there is a term of mo- that means that you could call morality in the Kantian uh, way of thinking that I agree if we were to uphold that, should be suspended in in the cases that Kierkegaard was talking about. So I, I I think I know what's going on beneath it. I don't want to dive too far into it because I don't know. I don't like playing word games. I'll, I'll just
1: <laughs> say that this this distinction is still a live one in meta ethics currently. Right. Mm. So like uh, Dale Dorsey at KU wrote a book called The Limits of Moral Authority, and his claim is that. And actually published an attack on Dorsey, which made it, the criticism made it into this book, uh, which I was very proud of. <laughs> but his claim is that if we have to take what's called PMI, the principle of that nobody can count for more than anybody else in our moral deliberations, then it turns out that almost all types of morality, like you know utilitarianism, for example, or almost any kind of consequentialism, are going to be too demanding. In the sense that they are going to require you to sacrifice people that you love um, to benefit people who you know, are far away from it, right? So his conclusion is that since this conception of indistinguishability is central to morality, that what morality requires of us and what we have all things considered reason to do, those can wildly differ. And therefore, morality doesn't tell us what we all things consider should do. It just, It is another system of norms like etiquette, which you are permitted to break occasionally. So I think what you're getting at is correct, that most people, when they use the word morality, mean what we have all things considered reason to do, right?
0: And I have it in my notes from somewhere, but I apparently don't know it well enough to always come to the top of my head, even though I want to get to that point. When you have Justin's word, I think it's a two-word saying of, when you have a higher level of responsibility to those you are
1: near to. Principle of permissible partiality. Permissible partiality,
0: yes. All right, that looks like a good place to end. We'd like to thank you all for listening to the Gordon Institute's production here at Ottawa University. If you like what you hear, be sure to forward it along to your friends and a five-star rating helps other people find us as well. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.